He's a small bear made in a factory. She's a human consciousness formed by class antagonism. Together, they'll break the chains of the proletariat and your heart. Knackers and the Vag. This is the Vag. This is the bear called Knackers, not been executing his duties very well lately. Welcome to my life coach, my colleague, my friend, Chris Graham of newmatilda.com. This is our seventh attempt to make a podcast together. This, it is, it's, but it's the first attempt sober. So <laughs> It didn't go well last night, dude. I thought it went spectacularly well. Yeah, it really didn't. We've got to get back to Amy. Yeah, no, we've got to... Yeah, I'll let me move. All right. So, I, I always lead on radio, so I've got to... But, oh, um, Jesus, mate. It's my fucking show. I've got to submit... My fucking yeah, show. No, What's the show called? Obviously, none of it could ever be aired. Um, not without our lawyers... No, we'd need um, to start... Abandoning a, me. ...a crowdfunded project um, to... Um, Free Razor. <laughs> it's, it's, seriously, the things I cried about my childhood... Yes, I, I don't think you cried. It I did. It, oh, did you? It's on tape. I must be um, quite insensitive because I didn't notice. <laughs> on the upside. It was about midnight. So. You, you were absolutely fine. I was a mess. Knackers, you really must try harder. Uh, your voice sounds lovely this morning. Oh, mine or Knackers? No, your voice. My, I think it sounds a little bit deep and hungover, but, uh, yeah, but that's, I appreciate that. You know, that's attractive. <laughs> oh, thank you. Ladies love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, new Matilda. Dot com, a site of collision with fake news, whatever that is. You know, I've promised that we'll talk about that in more detail yes. in the future and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. It, a wonderful publication. I've written for it in the past. I still write for it at times. I, I utterly recommend that you read it. I certainly recommend that you give it a little bit of dosh. That's a really good recommendation. Uh, Chris is a chap that I've written about before. Uh, his personal history of how he became a journalist is a fascinating one and one that we've spoken about in great and teary detail in the seven preceding <laughs> progressively plastered podcasts. Mm. I think I got you out some of my um, psychopharmaceuticals last night too. Oh, that's right. I've never tried that before. And it was don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Don't share your pharmaceuticals, kids. No, you shouldn't. It's wrong. But I do remember saying to you, you haven't got any heart trouble, have you? And you were like, yeah, sure, but bring it on. <laughs> anyway. I actually literally do, but uh, I'm alive this morning. That's the good news. Or the bad news, depending on your perspective. I thought I'd attempt to focus the conversation. A, a great idea. Uh, today, and this could be last week as you hear this, there's some news as there generally is on Facebook. Uh. And the news on Facebook today, it's reminiscent of a story you might recall uh, from last year. I think it was last year. Uh, Kim uh, Fook, the, um, she's now a uh, citizen of Canada, but you, I'm going to show Chris the photograph here. Yeah, very iconic. You know this photograph. Um, it is of uh, a, a small girl. It's the very picture of vulnerability. She's running along a road. She's completely naked. There are other children beside her. They're still wearing their clothes. And in the back, uh, what you can see are napalm clouds. This photograph was taken in 1972 
toward the end of the Vietnam War, by which time the US had drained the gold reserves. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the war was ending and it was at that point, I understand from people who were around at the time, it was at that point that people began to see and demand images and, and, yeah. and read stories from it because, you know, it was a, it was a done deal. Um, people were getting out so I think that journalists were more, more able mm. to support what the US foreign policy was there. So a bloke, a, a Finnish photographer uh, called Nick Ort, uh, took the picture. It, it appeared a few days later on the um, front page of the New York Times. If you read a little bit about this picture, there was, and you know, this is more than than forty years old, uh, nearly fifty, really. Yeah. Um, and so this happened recently on Facebook. Um, so what happened at the New York Times all those years ago was apparently a, a very long conversation about whether or not um, it was acceptable to show this picture of war and how it afflicted everyday people, in this case children, and was it ethical to show this little girl in all of her nakedness? Mm. The decision was made, yes, and then Ut won the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism the next year. Kim Fook is still uh, alive, still proud of the photograph. I believe these days is a motivational speaker yeah, wow. in her now home country of Canada and is is proud of the photograph, doesn't believe it to be exploitative. Um, it's a document not only of something that she experienced but uh, a document of war. So she's always been very supportive of it. So you remember last year or perhaps the year before uh, this story uh was accompanied by this photograph, which which happens every so often because mm. it is, as you say, such an iconic image. Now, Facebook decided to withdraw the image from circulation and you know, as one would hope and expect, there was a great cry, you know, this is ridiculous. The, the woman depicted in the photograph, who was then a little girl, mm. is supportive of this image the New York Times made an editorial decision uh, uh, and as did other publications to publish the photograph. It's part of the cultural landscape of the West now and we regard this as a, as a document of the horror of war. And so many people were quite legitimately asking, you know, Facebook, why are you taking this away? Why have you decided that it falls under the category of child pornography when it's actually about – it's not child pornography, it's about the pornography of war. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could say, I guess, that it's a pornographic image in that it really does uh, ev evoke what – it's, it's an obscene image. There's no doubt about that, but not for the reasons Facebook thinks. And uh, Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, in New Matilda, I read obscene things, truly vulgar things. It's a vulgar world. It is. Bad news. Um, just, but, yeah. you know, I mean, people don't want to see, I don't necessarily want to see those images from Syria or, or Yemen. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's necessary that those things are spoken about. Of course. Surely. I mean, if the Aylan Kurdi image, for example, which is the most recent iconic image uh, or imagery of war, if Aylan Curdy had been naked, a naked toddler, um, in the arms of a, of a humanitarian worker, should that image have been used? And I don't think anyone would reasonably argue that 
um, it shouldn't. The Alan Alan Curdy image went around the world. It it sparked um, an outpouring of grief around the world. It didn't stop Australia, for example, from um, no, torturing I and jailing mean, people in Manus, but it was an iconic, important image. And it, it was the 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 horror of that image. The, it's horrendous image. I mean, is that it? It happened at mm. all. And there were, and there have been similar photographs de- depicting what occurs in everyday lives, or what may be occurring in everyday lives, from Syria. One of the things about that image and similar images is that there was a worldwide response. So yeah. many Western leaders said, "And now, including Obama, now is the time to do something." Yeah. Um, and what as Important and as true as you can say, some of those images are, particularly images of children, and as important as the picture of um, Kim Fook was, and as important as she still says it was. One of the reasons that that image of Kim Fook became acceptable is that the decision had already been taken by Kissinger to withdraw from Vietnam. I understand Nixon wasn't happy about the image mm. at all. And I found that the image of Alan. Curdie was one that permitted a very public and probably very heartfelt response by many leaders. Mm. And what it also permitted was absolutely no change in policy to the war in Syria, to the- Well, they increased the bombing. I mean, it's the, you said it before, it's the, you know, the cry to do something. And it's often the problem is the something that they do. And the response is often the problem, but that doesn't change the importance of the image. You see this in Aboriginal affairs all the time that, you know, the five most dangerous words in Aboriginal affairs, apart from, you know, the the notion of bipartisan politics, which is dangerous, but the five most dangerous words are um, we have to do something. And it's the something that we do that is the problem because we keep doing the same thing that we always did, expecting a different outcome. Politician syllogism made famous in the old show, really the precursor of something like Veep, which is a funny program, um, and the thick of it shows that you may or yeah. may not have seen. But um, yes, love minister, the thick of it. Yeah, 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 yeah it's so good. Um, yeah. uh, uh, yes, minister, and then yes, prime minister. Yep. Do you remember these from when you were? I, I, I'm one of the world's biggest fans of all of those, and, particularly yes, minister. And, and so, do you remember the um, that it was Sir Humphrey? Sir Humphrey Appleby. And Sir Humphrey's politician's syllogism, can I remember it in the fog of hangover? Something must be done. This is something. Ergo, let's do this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this for you characterises policy around Aboriginal affairs, the thing that New Matilda uh, reports on most comprehensively. and for you, this the same thing is we'll return to the question of Facebook in a minute, but I do want to talk to Chris about the life and the work of Chris. Have you there are changes? Oh, there are. In Aboriginal Affairs, yes, very much so. In in policy. Mm. And I know from your work and reading the work of others trying to read some history around it that Policies are kind of got the way they're enacted a little bit worse, not better. Oh, they're definitely worse. And and if you, in the context of, um, you know, we we know so much more. 
um, that makes it even worse, that we're still doing the same things or worse. Um, the, the thing that's really shifted in Aboriginal affairs is, is the goodwill. Um, there is an increasing understanding in Australia that, that we can't keep doing what we did. That hasn't been followed with, with different action from leaders. They still keep doing the same things that they used to do and media still seek to exploit ignorance around Aboriginal affairs. They haven't really got the memo yet that a lot of people... I concur. There, there, there is now a public hunger. We have there this is. very large generation of millennials, the generation below you and me, where those uh, that small generation, Generation X, yeah. and um, not really. There's not enough of us to be a huge political force. No, there's enough of those kids though, and I certainly get the sense that they think. Oh, really? You just keep saying nothing can be done. The problem is too complex. Just to pick up on a thing that you said earlier about bipartisan politics and how repugnant the idea of bipartisan politics can be, can you expand on that generally and then specifically in terms of a policy around the lives of Aboriginal people? Absolutely. The the thing that's wrought the most damage to Aboriginal people is bipartisan politics because the two major parties are in furious agreement about the terrible things they do to Aboriginal people. And that's supported by uh, big media who have an interest in towing a particular um, ideological or political line. And and that bipartisan politics in Australia has manifested as the Northern Territory intervention, which is easily the worst um, Aboriginal affairs policy in living memory. Um, supported by Labor, introduced by the Liberals, and then run by Labor and now run again by the Liberals. So it's been going for over 10 years. Mm. Um, it is clearly uh, killing Aboriginal people. It's harming Aboriginal communities. It's clearly failing. It's soaking up massive amounts of money. The The recent furor over the rape of a toddler in Tennant Creek has reignited that whole debate. We're having precisely the same debate we had um in the lead-up to the Northern Territory Intervention, nothing has changed, mm. including the bipartisan nature of Labor and Liberal support for interventionist-style policies. And and so we will be having this discussion in another 10 years. We will look back in 10 years and say, oh, that didn't work, we better do that again. The appearance of the debate has changed. However, perhaps 50 years ago, what you might have seen are the two major parties both perhaps, well, I mean, it wasn't really discussed openly 50 years ago, but you you might find both major parties saying, well, you know, these people, these infants, they're a problem yeah, and something must be done. So always this very paternalistic attitude uh, and, uh, you know, that something must be done to them. But now yeah. on both sides of politics you see the more kind of compassionate, liberal cant of the age where people on both sides of politics, including former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, will shed tears, which may or may not be legitimate, and they'll, they'll both say, this is an important uh, issue, this is um, a bipartisan issue and, and something should be done. And um, some, not something should be done to them, but something should be done for them. Of course, the, the realistic mm. thing is that something is done to people and that is generally speaking a basic denial of the rights any citizen should expect from birth. Absolutely. The, the, the government policy for, for 
100 years, certainly in the last 50, has all, around Aboriginal affairs and Aboriginal people, has always been dressed with good intent. But that's what you're supposed to believe. And it's always pushed that way. You know, we must remove these children, these poor, wretched children from these poor, wretched communities. Um, they're being abused and neglected. So we must take them and we must save them. But um, we've been prosecuting exactly that argument for decades now and it hasn't got us anywhere. Um, other nations which have confronted this issue where they have an Indigenous population worked out a very long time ago that the only way forward was for Indigenous people to control Indigenous solutions. It's, it's not a controversial concept anywhere else in the world but Australia. Um, but we keep doing the same things and we keep pretending that it's about good intent. The Northern Territory intervention was was manufactured by the ABC and other media as we must do something um, and it then became at least we're doing something once the policy inevitably failed. But it's the something we've done that's the problem and the intent behind the Northern Territory intervention was a problem as well. John Howard launched the Northern Territory intervention in the shadow of a election that he knew he would lose. He was given um, polling advice that told him he needed to intervene in the affairs of the states and territories. Within 24 hours of receiving that polling advice, he announced the Northern Territory intervention. Mm. So it was a it was a political wedge. Labor knew it was a political wedge. How did it work as a political performance? Um, well, it didn't save Howard, but it was a very popular policy. Yes. Uh, Alexander Downer in the mop-up after the election said it was a really popular policy. We had very strong support, but it wasn't enough to get us across the line. That's how the Liberals saw the Northern Territory intervention and Labor saw it as a wedge, so uh, Labor supported it. And then in office, Labor continued it. To my shame, I was in a bit of a state of housewife paralysis at, at the time and I remember being very moved and I now am repulsed by this reaction, knowing a little more through your work and the work of others, like Amy Maguire, um, about what occurred during the intervention. I remember being moved by Mel Bro, Broff being, yeah. being, being moved. Mm. Um, he cried on television. Um, he seemed to be, and I'm sure that he was, absolutely swept up in this idea that there was this great injustice, that things were terrible. And I remember thinking, and I, I, I remember in the 2007 election thinking, oh, well, you know, it's, I may have even said so publicly. God, I hope not. I probably did. <laughs> he seemed like a nice bloke. He, he's not. I, sure. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm sure that his intentions were perhaps decent. Maybe. Who cares? Yeah, it doesn't matter in the end. The, the outcome was horrendous. There was a parliamentary inquiry that proved there was widespread starvation across the Northern Territory mm. when they introduced the intervention. If I introduced a policy in Melbourne that caused widespread starvation and anemia rates in children to spike, there would be a Royal Commission. Um, but that's what happened in the Northern Territory. The, the self-harm and suicide, attempt suicide rates mm. more than quadrupled. What can we say of Jenny Macklin, who was oh. the, the <sighs> Labor... Um, minister responsible for many years for the continuation of that policy, which went on uninterrupted under Labor. Yeah. What can we say about Macklin, who also did a very good job of looking like a Labor elder, looking yeah. as though she were committed to social justice? How did it work well, under Macklin? Under Macklin, um, she presided over a housing program called SIHIP, which spent $150 million in two years without building a single home uh, for any Aboriginal person in the Territory. Um, she rolled out, she spent, 
you know, more than a billion dollars rolling out a Northern Territory intervention that delivered bugger all in the way of housing, um, led to um, Aboriginal children abandoning schools across the Territory and, and they've never recovered from that. Um, it led to massive spikes in uh, alcohol uh, consumption and violence related to alcohol consumption. Everything it was designed to do, effectively it did the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that's undeniable. No one really argues against that now. But um, people were warning Macklin and others at the time, this is the inevitable outcome of this policy, and it came true. But Macklin has never conceded that. Macklin, um, her political cowardice on this issue is staggering. And I can tell you what Aboriginal people say about Macklin. Her name in Aboriginal affairs was Genocide Jenny. That's Mm, still to this day what they call her. Yeah. And um, Labor is as guilty as the Liberals on on the intervention. Uh, I was speaking recently on this podcast to my friend Shakira Hussein, who I think you mm, may know. She's like, she's brilliant. I, she really is. She's a good thinker, that chick. Mm. And she was saying that, damn it, no, I do have a double standard. When it comes to, you know, I expect horrendous things from political parties and leaders who are openly horrendous. Mm. When a leader like uh, Tony Abbott, or John Howard does the thing that you expect them to do, that they have clearly stated yeah. <laughs> that they have every intention of doing, yeah. I am unsurprised. I'll still document it. I'll still talk about it. I'll still oppose it. However, I'm unsurprised. Mm. Now, for many years in Australia with with uh, policies uh, around the lives of Aboriginal people and other matters, Labor says one thing and does the other, just as, and I discussed this too, I think with Shakira, you brought up um, Alan Curdy, the uh, the, the son of a, a chap who's still alive and I think has made it to uh, Canada since, yeah. since then. And, you know, you see Obama shortly thereafter making a speech saying, this must never happen again. Who among us can look at this image and, <sighs> and, and do nothing? And yet... He does nothing. That to Shakira, to me, to you, to many people is more disturbing yeah. than an out-and-out neocon such as Bush yeah. doing. I mean, even he, it turned out, was hugely hypocritical as the very yeah, brave Chelsea Manning brought to our attention. Mm. But, yes, it's okay to have a double standard. When you when you have somebody who speaks about social justice and is apparently committed in public to the idea of reform and somebody who is very openly compassionate. I mean, I can get fooled. I was fooled by Bruff, despite the fact that he was a member of the Liberal or National? Yeah, Yeah, Liberal. And, you know, it causes great pain to a lot of people to the extent that you do hear phrases like, it's not the first time I've heard genocide Jenny. Yeah. We're not saying it. We're just reporting what, what we yeah, heard. Yeah. If the lawyers are listening. And <laughs> <laughs> Mine will be. <laughs> and, you know, Shakira was talking about this around Julia Gillard, who on the day of her famous misogyny speech mm. said all of these inspiring things for all us gals in the typing pool who'd ever been diminished or grabbed by a grabby man. <laughs> and a then great speech. At the very... Was a wonderful speech. At the very same time, what's going on in the Senate is legislation that she had proposed, which was very punitive around single, single mothers, parents yeah. or single parents who are single usually parents, yeah. women. Mm. Um, and so, yes, she said clearly, 
the other day to me, I do have a double standard mm. and that's fine. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. We're all hypocrites. It's the depth that varies. And sometimes, you, you know, I, I'm aware of – I try to be aware of my hypocrisies and I try to be comfortable with them. But um, on Aboriginal affairs, um, the, the problem really is is – not just – well, it used to be lack of information. It's not so much now. The information is there. But 10 years ago, um, there wasn't widespread media reporting of the Northern Territory intervention and Bruff, Mal Bruff did come into the portfolio in a whirlwind and there was a circus surrounding it and he was able to convince a lot of people, in particular journalists in influential positions, that he was a man committed to progressing Aboriginal rights and advantages. Mm. He wasn't. Um, he was just a nakedly ambitious politician looking mm. for a wedge. And um, we know that in hindsight. Some of us knew it at the time. But, you know, it, it, you don't know what you don't know. Let's also say that um, had the economic life of everyday Australians who, for the, for the most part, don't give a shit about what's happening in the Territory because, you know. It's a world away. It is a world away. There's a lot of shit in in your life. You may not see people in another part of Australia as your comrades. I'm not. I'm not pointing a finger here. I'm, I I, no, re- I really look- know that people's lives are eclipsed by their own problems. But what had occurred um, leading up to the 2007 election in Australia was something called work choices. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe that work choices turned the election around. You can say it was because Kevin Rudd, who became twice the Australian Prime Minister, um, was really great at social media. You could say, if you were a true idealist and optimist, that people just didn't like what was going on in the Territory. Well, you know, really they didn't give a shit because it kept, given a shit. It, it kept going, going on. But again, I'm not pointing the finger at you and saying, if you've been inert on this matter, you are a shit person. You're not. You've got shit going on. You're not. And look, Shakira's right. That, and I've experienced this myself. I'm aware, I'm aware of those hypocrisies. I, I have, um, I've, I've been immersed in Aboriginal affairs for nearly two decades and many other things have passed me by. One of them was, was feminism. And New Matilda published a story a few years ago that was a really pretty appalling Story. It wasn't well crafted at all. It oh, wasn't you and a good I have debate. spoken about that. This yeah. is this is the one that, that this is the problem with feminism today. Yeah. that they're too mouthy. Yeah, well, I found that hilarious. Knowing you, like knowing yeah. and having yeah. a, a, a close mutual friend um, that eventually introduced us. Yeah, like for you of all people to publish in in New <laughs> Matilda a piece that said the problem with. Feminism was that they were too vulgar too and demanded yeah. too much and mm. called out the oppressor too much. That is not what is wrong with feminism. No. And look, I, I people uh, piled on me and fair enough. Um, m- my defence to that was um, I understand I don't know everything. I don't know very much about this issue at all. I can tell you a lot about Aboriginal rights and I can tell you a lot about what's happened to Aboriginal people and that's where I've immersed myself. Mm. I've since tried to become, and I am much more, uh, aware of of issues around feminism and, and of the treatment of women in the workplace, and where New Matilda is now running a lot of stories around the Me Too uh, issue, and, and, and we're doing a lot of investigations. You're endeavouring to do it in industries where women may not be famous, may not yeah, be paid, it's, and a it lot. shouldn't be about celebrity. But so you don't know what you don't know, and I'm actually we got to get you right. We got to get you set up with some like secure drop. Yeah, we're going to, yeah, well. So people can talk to you anonymously. That's a good idea. Um, 
but uh, you know what you were saying earlier um, uh, before we began to talk about hypocrisy. Our nana's brain is not quite where it could be. I was going to. The only thing I was going to add to that is I, I can understand people being angry at me for not being across yes. a raft of issues, and I understand that. But here's here's the terrible reality: I'm not across many issues, and I can't be because I am. I'm a specialist in some issues, but I don't beat the living daylights out of Australians. Uh, or feminists or anyone for not understanding Aboriginal affairs because mm. it is enormously uh, detailed and difficult to um, to get your head around it. it. You've got to spend a lot of time immersed in it to understand it. So I get that. Yeah. I, I just I think Australians can do more and they are doing more now to at least understand that they don't understand. I went to a march this year and not much moves me out of the house to protest anymore. It was more out of simply because I believe that street protest has a comparatively limited potential to what it did in the past. Yeah. Um, having said that, sometimes you feel the vibe and you go. And on, yeah. on, on January 26th I went and there were, I was expecting four or 500 people. 60,000 I think was the. This is the biggest and it was the 30th anniversary of the the, the, the Long March in Sydney, which was the um, the 200th anniversary of invasion of Australia. Yeah. The largest gathering ever, I'm told, of Aboriginal people at any point in history. Yeah, that's probably true. This is true. what Foley tells me. Yeah, oh, then it's right. <laughs> and uh, Professor Gary Foley, yeah. um, a historian um, and a professor, hence yeah. the title. Yeah. And there were about the same number of um, allies, oh, that's a dreadful word, supporters. Yeah, um, yeah. And we were told to um, by marshals to line up um, in the streets of Sydney from Belmore Park and just applaud, not not cheer, not sort of take any away anything away from this statement of survival. And it, it was extraordinary, and it's the largest demonstration I've been to since that time. It was you. You didn't happen to be in Sydney on that day, did you? you uh, in '88. Yeah, you would have no, been a I little was, one. Yeah, I was a kid. I was actually. I was in Sydney on that day. I was. I was in the CBD on the top of my dad's building at, at the harbour where uh, he worked. I was 18. You would have been 13. I was 16 in '88. I was 15 actually, turning 16. And look, I it wasn't on my radar. I grew up. Uh, you know, in a you know, in the southwest of Sydney, and all I knew about Aboriginal people was that there was a bit of a disagreement, but we sorted it all out. Now we all get along. That's basically what I learned mm. in school. And when I went to work as a journalist in regional Australia, was stunned to discover that that's not quite right. <laughs> that that's not what happened. Um, but it wasn't on my radar, and I understand why it isn't on. Um, many people's radar today. There's so many things that people have to deal with. and There's so many things that a reporter has to deal with too. There is this yeah. presumption now that if one speaks in a mainstream media form, one requires expertise on a number of things. There's a mm. um, young editor, journalist that I really like working with, I don't know if you've ever met her, a young Australian called Alex Gorman. Right, I know, I know. Alex, oh, Alex has yeah. worked across a range of publications. I think now she's with Time Out magazine. Mm. Great young editor, really, really good. And I remember I think she was appearing on one of those television panel shows or I was appearing on one of those television panel shows and we were discussing the questions together. We like to have a natter every now and then, Alex mm. and I, about stuff. 
And she said to me, this is some years ago now, well, if you don't know anything about it, don't talk about it. Say, very educated young, young lady, like Wittgenstein, I choose to fall into silence. Never read Wittgenstein, don't know what she means. But it's, it's quite smart. It's very rare now when you appear yeah. on a panel show and you're asked to talk about super profits tax or the refugee crisis or the climate. Yeah. And then you're required to come up with. Uh, an opinion. And I mean, you're, you're really only there to sell the fact that you have opinions. Yeah. You, generally speaking, don't get paid. And it's peculiar. So, you know, a great deal of people in media are, are, are asked to be these extraordinary generalists. They don't mm. really have any idea. And it's perfectly excusable for, remember that journalism has always been Chris's job since he was 15, he left school and yeah. became a journalist, mm. um, you know, a copy boy and then a, a, a cadet. He chose to specialise. He has a great deal of knowledge about one particular thing and knows shit all about feminism. That's true. It's all right. <laughs> I know a bit more now, but I certainly didn't a few years ago. I, I know, but it's not necessarily your responsibility. No, and look, it, I, I get your, beaten up for that. It's your responsibility only to know where your shortcomings are. Yeah, and I do. I know where they are and I try my best to to fill in those gaps um, with the caveat that oh, I've still got a lot of other work to do and I've got a lot of other issues that I have to prosecute. You know, New Matilda, we cover such a, we cover everything. So I had to – I've always taken an interest in Palestine but not at a level that um, enabled me to adequately edit a publication. So I had to upgrade my – you know, I've been there four years but I had to quickly get up to speed on Palestine. Mm. I've had to get up to speed on climate change. Um, I had to get up to speed on nuclear energy. There's a whole raft of issues – I had to get my head around quite quickly. and I'm trying to understand cyber warfare and the implications yeah. for the peace movement of that at the moment. It's very complex. I've not written about it yet because mm. I just don't understand it. And in my in my stubborn dotage, that means, you know, I'm getting, getting older and perhaps more uh, honest about my limitations, yeah. uh, which probably everybody else was aware of, but, you know, <laughs> we, we're curious beings. Uh, a lot of the time we think we're capable of a lot more thought and of processing a lot more information than we actually are. But, you mm. know, at this, at this point in my, my life, and I know this is the case with other people, including you, 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 you sort of organise things as best you can um, in terms of your personal survival and your psychological survival to say, well, how little money can I survive on? <laughs> what can I concentrate on? Yeah. How can I? And it's not even a noble thing. It's like, how can I practice what I've learned and and still eat and get to sleep at night without hating myself? Mm. And there's certain issues that you let other people take over. You're yeah. dim, you're dimly aware that these might be important justice issues. Yeah, um, you but, can't fight every fight though. And uh, you, you, you can't, but there is this impetus for people within traditional media to be across everything, to be correct line on everything, to be mm. up to the minute with what has occurred in activist and, and academic circles on uh, trans rights, mm. to be up to the minute on queer theory, to understand everything that Black Lives Matter is, is doing. My advice to the younger reporter or the younger news analyst or journalist is to unfortunately choose a focus, choose a specialty. Yeah. 
Um, what you may have to do in order to earn money is be a generalist, and certainly I'm a generalist. Mm. Um, but underscoring a lot of my work is some of the, except for the gardening column, um, is <laughs> some, you know, basic um, assumptions, knowing about what my expertise is. This has not always been the case. I've sounded off on many occasions previously about things that I know nothing about by your own admission you've mm. published articles because you look by necessity you have to have a free and easy attitude to the maintenance of your publication you Matilda we've got to promote debate um I don't have to necessarily understand all the debate but uh, yeah we have to allow people to have their say you do have to allow people. You've got to do it responsibly and we haven't always yes and, and we won't always unfortunately there's the bad news we're not perfect and we're going to bugger up sorry yeah. I'll just apologise now for all the times into the future that I get it wrong. But. So, I mean, unfortunately it's the nature of work as it's currently organised. Um, there are specialties that m most people mm. go go into. You, you acquire a particular skill in whatever your means of survival, whether that's you're mm. very good at doing um, uh, convincing people to purchase things by telephone, you're good at help desk, you have machinist skills, not very often anymore in the West, um, or you're a specialty uh, on Aboriginal affairs, hmm. which, and we should mention that you're a white dude. Yeah, very white. Well, I've got a bit of Māori heritage, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those, those shoulders aren't the shoulders of a white bloke. No, yeah, I've got the, I got the Māori gene. But, and, and, you know, if I go in the sun, I'm very brown. But, uh, yeah, no, I grew up a white boy in Sydney and... Um, like most white boys in Sydney, I grew up with enormous um, comparative privilege but with very little information about people who didn't have that comparative privilege. Can we just – this is something that is um, – I've heard somebody do a talk on it recently, so it's it's a bit of a thing. You talk about privilege. I knew I'd get you in on that. <laughs> Can we just draw a distinction between rights and privilege, please? Rights um, and privilege. Okay, so you say that you had enormous privilege. Um, comparative privilege, okay, I said, yeah. So – what you actually had in some cases were the rights that are apparently guaranteed to you in law. Okay, yeah, so, and that's a privilege. Uh, well, it's not a privilege afforded to Aboriginal people in the territory. It's, it's, I just want to make the distinction that mm. when we talk about privilege and we ask people, to, I know what you're saying, to yeah. give up their privilege. Yeah. Um, no, I don't want anyone to give up what I see as, you their, give up as their rights. That's ridiculous. You know, if you consider it a privilege, for example, I know I've banged on about this before, and so I've spoken with you about it too. And remember, there's the bear when yeah, I start going on too much. <laughs> no, keep going because I like this. It's not a privilege to be able to walk the streets no. without being racially vilified. It is not a privilege. To be able to do your productive human labour, contribute to the broader society, amuse yourself, ensure the means for your survival and the survival of the broader society without being abused. That is not a privilege. That's a right. That's a right. So mm. I just want to encourage, I mean, and I do understand what people mean in particular when they say white privilege. That's why I um, say comparative privilege. Yes. Because, because- Okay, so I just—I um, don't think people should I'm, give up their privilege. I'm, I'm, you should use your privilege to to help enable those who don't have the rights that you enjoy. That's okay, how you should use your privilege. So but. what? So what I'm urging is perhaps a talk around rights rather than privilege, privilege. because we we yeah. because I think I think that it muddies the issue because we live in Western societies, we live in these liberal democracies that perpetually promise us mm. that if we are meritorious enough, that we will attain. 
all sorts of goodies that, you know, if only you strive, if only you study hard, if only you don't eat avocados for brunch or take too many (laughs) Ubers, then what you will have is everything that this society can deliver. Now, we know even from quite conservative economists that that's not true. I mean, you know, Thomas Piketty with Capital in the 21st century somehow shocked people when he made what I consider the very centrist real-life observation is that uh, is it so-called privilege and wealth in particular tends to be inherited. You, it does. You, uh, and uh, this is the case all over the West. We have this idea that, um, you know, people are being lifted out of poverty continually, et cetera, et cetera. They're not. No, it just means they're not uh, on the scale, on the on the scale that they used to define poverty, they might be two cents above it. They're, the, still, they're still poor. The income distribution is all over the shop at, at the moment. There is, um, you know, approaching pre-Great Depression yeah. era levels of wealth inequality and generally speaking the best um, indicator of, I mean overwhelmingly speaking, the best indicator of the kind of life you will live is determined by where you were born. Absolutely. And, you, I mean, you know, of course then, you know, racism and sexism, all of those things coalesce to Mm. reinforce this idea that, you know, well, it's just a coincidence that, you know, most of the people at the top are white and male and and, and had an expensive education. Yeah, that wasn't engineered. It was just bad luck Um, or good luck. Well, I mean, it was a thing that happened. It was a complex of events. Uh, Whether or not you can say truly that it's engineered, I think that's a difficult thing to say, but there's reasons for it. Yeah, there is. It's a a thing that happened. It's not like there's three guys pulling the levers of the world. No. It's a complex of events that permit this to happen. However, we live in these societies that we believe to be not just democratic but increasingly democratic. The society's promise in, you know, everyday speech, in all forms of propaganda, in law, in politics, Mm. that you can have whatever you want. So there is this perpetual promise of equality, of rights. However, that's not afforded. And for me, you know, I mean, even go back to the fairly conservative declaration of human rights by the United Nations. Mm. And there are things like, you know, the right to free association, the right to food, the right to clean water, water. Mm. Um, the right to privacy, uh, which is a a very important right that a Mm. lot of Aboriginal people simply don't have. They live life under unimaginable surveillance. Mm, They do. Just scrutiny at the level of, you know, racism in our cities Mm. Yeah, Aboriginal people know that white people are looking at them. Absolutely. Every time they walk into a supermarket, they know they're going to be followed. But, but you know, as as you've reported, like intimate medical scrutiny of Aboriginal bodies. Yeah, that was part of the Northern Territory Convention. And, I mean, scrutiny of internet use, all kinds of scrutiny, scrutiny to the level that you can track people's spending at the supermarkets, for God's sake. Will, you know, make it. It will guarantee the fact that you're going to live in poverty. And not only that, mm. we're going to make sure you spend your money that we gave you because you have to live under this system mm. in a way that we consider suitable. Yeah. And so for, for me, and it's I think it's just dis- disturbed me at a at a really kind of like fundamental level since I was young, hearing this story, 
you can make it if you try. Yeah. And like you having, I guess, made it in a particular way for a, a, a time, yeah. you know, like lifting yourself up by your bootstraps and then seeing, yeah, it doesn't really work this way. You know, no. I was lucky. I was lucky. It's a, it's a bit of a lottery. And Aboriginal people themselves talk about privilege. They talk about white privilege. And it's born of their frustration that uh, for so long people haven't listened and, and Aboriginal people feel like um, they don't enjoy the rights and privileges that other Australians do. I just, do. you know, I just, I mean, I'm not telling anyone no, how not. to talk. No, no. I'm just saying that this no, is. No, and I, I don't an tell interest- Aboriginal people how to talk on that either. No. They're welcome to their view on no, that. No, but I, I'm just, but it's a very popular way of understanding the world. The, the view is that some people have privileges and actually speaking, yes, of course they do. But if mm. we're living in societies, which we are, that say you are guaranteed rights under law, but the fact is you don't have the means to exercise those rights, mm. um, then we must talk about rights. So th- there are rights that I believe this is a very fundamental thing that all human beings have. Yeah. There, there is undeniably, though, in Australia, undeniably your skin colour has afforded you advantages over other Shit, people. Yeah. Undeniable. So you can call it advantages or privileges or privilege or however you want to uh, articulate it. And Aboriginal people have a way of articulating it. And and I think there is some nuanced debate that needs to happen around this. So I think Just around the language. Because the language and the identity politics issue I think is a, a really interesting area. It's not just in no, it's Aboriginal not. culture. It's just no. this is the language that we've adopted. This is the popular thing. There is a lot of talk about it in all kinds of feminism as well. Yeah. Um, and for, for, for me, I think, you know, I'm not saying language is all powerful and determines reality. R- reality produces language. But we need to describe what we're actually describing. I know what you're do saying. Do we yeah. believe that, do you and I believe, do you believe that there are certain rights that every human being has? Absolutely. Well, tell me whether that's a right or, or a that's a privilege. It must no longer be a privilege. We must begin to think about these things as rights. It is a right not to live in poverty. It is yeah. a right not to live under co- constant state and cultural scrutiny. It is a right not to be um, habitually harassed. I don't think we're ever going to live in a utopia where, you know, there, there are no fuckwits. But some people have achieved but, those, th- those rights. Well, you know, they do live... Um, Comparatively, in in much better circumstances than others, and Australia, it, it doesn't get any more stark than Australia. If you mm. go to Central Australia, for example, the Utopia region, um, it's the poorest region in Australia. It's also got some of the worst life statistics on earth. Mm. It is for people who haven't been there. It is worse than m- many parts of of the poorest parts of Africa. Um, I was in Palestine not all that long ago. Um, the Aboriginal circumstance in Central Australia is much worse than the mm. circumstance in Palestine, which is shocking. Mm. I mean, Palestine is one of the most war-ravaged, um, occupied uh, places on earth. But if you go to a place like Camel Camp in Utopia, the poverty will it will stun average Australians if they see it. We just choose not to. Um, and even when we do see it, we it doesn't impact on us. We turn away or, you know, John, John Pilger's, Second last documentary was called Utopia. It was about the poverty in the in in the Utopian region. That documentary was much more consumed internationally than it was in Australia. And and when it was aired in Australia, the response was um, overwhelming criticism from mainstream media commentators and politicians. Um, but it told a lot of truths. The declaration, I should 
I was the associate producer on that documentary, so I have a, a, an obvious conflict of interest. But it did um, expose a lot of truths about how Aboriginal people live. That documentary was uh, aired, I think, in 2013, so it's five years old. You're listening to Knackers and the Vag, one soft bear, one hard lady, and one <laughs> guest, Chris Graham. Hung from New, uh, <laughs> that Look, I might release some of the stuff that we talked about on this digital recorder last night, but, oh, my God, I cried about my mother. I, I think really we should release it under advisement from our lawyers, but um, uh, I'm actually not hungover from, to be truthful. I don't get hangovers, but uh, we, I'm quite lucky. Recently, since I started doing this, podcast I've reacquired the habit of drinking I'm <laughs> really not very good at it I'm not a large <laughs> just, just practice, person no, just practice and I've I'm I'm completely out of practice just to be as gracelessly clear as I can Mr Graham I am in no way gainsaying I know that what you said I know of that of course absolutely. racism is 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 real and of course it reinforces and um uh, economic in, in, inequality cultural inequality of course sexism is real um this is in some respects one of the most racist nations on earth again I'm not saying it's your fault, you know, don't wrestle with white guilt or whatever yeah. if you're a, a, a white person. It's, I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying that you need to entangle yourselves in the pain of history. I'm not even saying that if you feel that it's not your area of speciality as a reader, a reader is perfectly entitled to have an area of interest, just as a journalist, I think, is better when he, she or they has an area of interest. And I'm not saying by any means mm. you must use this language, but I am saying that the dominant language about so-called human rights at the moment is one of privilege and one of an entitlement. And what that suggests to me, and I have had people articulate this to me plainly. Now, let's look at something that became a little bit of an obsession or specialty, if you prefer, of mine, which is US election campaigning um, and the damage done um, by both the, 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 the Trump and Clinton campaigns mm. to public life. Now, this is a fact. Uh, white working class men in the USA who for 100 years things just got better and better for them. Mm. Started apparently in the middle of the 19th century right up till about 1970. Um, white blokes just had things were just go, going better and better for them. They were the, um, the, the heads of middle-class households. So for this whole dream that society gets better and better, mm. that we have perfected our forms of social organisation, that America is the greatest country on earth, is very much derived from this experience had by, again, I'm not playing identity politics here, I'm just talking about what occurred and then making some of my own conclusions based on this. Mm. So, you know, and it wasn't bad for a lot of Women as well. I mean, if they had decent husbands, a lot of them didn't. But mm. it, so one-income households by the 1950s, unimaginable 
luxury that exceeded those of your parents, you had a car. Um, and a washing you, machine you, and a dishwasher. You, you had a job. Um, if you were a, 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 a woman, you had certainly what Betty Friedan would later call when she was addressing purely white middle-class women. Hmm. The problem with no name is what she calls it in the, the feminine mystique from the, um, you know, a, a seminal liberal feminist document from the early 1960s. So the problem with no name. And there were large numbers of white middle-class women who were very alienated from the labour of being a wife um, and they were taking a lot of drugs, you know. Um, it was very easy to get barbiturates. They were giving um, over the care of their children to women of colour, mm. paying them a pittance to do do so. And even though there were certainly remarkable privileges for this growing white middle class of women, you know, swings and roundabouts, right? Mm. But the overwhelming experience was that things would get better and better. And now we're looking at this millennial generation in the West and they are the first people who truly know that their lifespans will not we're talking about whites too mm. you know and the, and and the mythology surrounding the white middle class of the west they know that in the us they're going to be in debt they know that they're going to have to live in their parents basements they hope that their parents aren't going to you know spunk all their assets before they die mm. um and so what has occurred in the last 30 years with Globalization and labor moving offshore. Am I boring you, darling? No, no, no. Okay? I was, that was a that was a silent belch. All right, oh, <laughs> very polite of you because you've got the bear when I when I go on too long. So, so what has happened is that the the health of white men has deteriorated. Um, their lo- longevity is not what it was. Mm. Their their wages are ludicrous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now they still have more to use the term that we were talking about before privilege than women, um, than like all women, women within their cultural groups. They Mm. still have more um, privilege than so-called minorities. Um, But what they've also experienced is a great loss and the lives that many people in the so-called flyover states are living are just ones of destitution, again, much better than than others. So you discuss this with people or you even discuss sort of uh, global um, uh, um, wealth and its movement and the apprehension that a lot of people have, is especially sort of, you know, progressive people, is that, well, it's my turn now or it's their turn now and who cares about white men? They had it so good for so long. So it becomes, if you use to me the language of privileges rather than the the language of rights, it becomes a zero sum game. I, and, I see the and benefit you, of that. And I do. But but people are saying, well, you need to give up what you have in order for me to have what I do. And like, yeah, frankly, just being selfish. Like, I'm not going to step aside from. I'm not going to give up the good things I have in life, which I, I mean, I don't have any savings, I don't have any assets, but I have enough food to eat. Mm. I have rewarding labor that I'm close to. I work with good people. Mm. I don't want to give up any of this shit for no one, man. I'm, no, yeah. Why should you? I mean, and I don't believe that I need to live, that, that, that we need to live in a society where your rights or what you might call privileges 
are contingent on somebody else giving them up. What white men had for that brief period in the US and also in Australia, I want for everyone. And that's what I want. And I don't think that they, that particular identity group needs to be punished. I mean, it just doesn't make economic sense. We have abundance in this world for all. Yeah. It's not, I don't think, I don't think it's about giving things up. I think it's about ensuring that others have equality of opportunity and they don't in this country. I I mean, I don't even think it's about equality of opportunity. The problem with equality of opportunities is, you know, it's a great concept, but it doesn't exist in Australia and promoting it is what the neocons have done for years. To, it's exactly what you're talking about before. Any man can grow to be president is the American way of putting it. Well, even if it's even if you're not a neoconservative, when you're talking about equality of opportunity, you're not really talking about equality of experience. You're just saying without examining it, even though you might in mean- In theory, you should be, yeah. That, that everything as it is currently organised is fine- I just want other people to have the opportunity to accumulate great wealth to amass great power. Now, I don't want that. What I want is abundance for all. And there's plenty to go around. If you look in there, Central I mean, Australia. There is plenty to go around. There's plenty to go around the whole world. You can go off your head about, you know, those Africans, they have too many babies or whatever you want. I mean, the fact is, you know, check with economists including you know, Mark Blythe, for example, not an actual communist, but somebody whose work I really admire. It's his insistence that there is enough for all. There's enough clean there water. Is. There's an, there's enough productivity. There's enough innovation there's, that others don't have to live in slavery or destitution. We just need to fucking organise things differently. And, yeah, we do. And to talk about equal opportunity does not critique at all an unequal system is all I'm saying. No, it doesn't. In, but in Central Australia, it's a real thing. The government spending um, on infrastructure, for example, has never um, been – you wouldn't even describe it as adequate. It's not even a relevant debate. It just, it just isn't government investment in remote Aboriginal communities. Mm. So they don't have the opportunity to live on their country, the place that um, you know their ancestors were born on, and enjoy the same rights that everybody else does because those fundamental rights are denied. Um so you know it, the, the from the Aboriginal perspective in Australia, when they talk about white privilege, what they're you're right, you're hundred percent right. They're actually talking about rights, but the Aboriginal. And, and please don't think I'm saying check your language. Talk about no, it no, whatever fucking way you like. I'm just talking more broadly because you know that the word privilege extends beyond usage by one community. Yeah, I I I just look at the, and I understand the aboriginal perspective on on phrases like white privilege because they look at uh, a community the community where I grew up in in southwestern sydney and they see how much more that community gets yeah. than what they get and they call that privilege and they call it privilege because it 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 has always been based on and constructed on the basis of race. Um, so they're frustrated and they want it fixed. I can see the advantage of properly identifying with language, with the correct language, that this is not a privilege, it's a right. But Aboriginal people, um, that's not the debate they're having. Because Certainly. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and this is a very common language to, yeah. to many people and I, com- I completely understand. And I just um, – and I understand in my own life when I was younger, I would have an experience of intense jealousy 
I mean, I'm not saying that with Aboriginal culture that it's an experience of of, of jealousy at all. I'm talking no, merely in my own terms. But I would see somebody with things that I didn't have mm. as as quite a young person. Yeah. I mean, and very palpably, they had things and opportunities that I did not. Mm. And I would think about what they had in terms of entitlement and I would think also, and I'm not saying this is the discussion going on in Aboriginal culture at all, I, I know that it's not, you you report on it, other re- people report on it, but it becomes um, a, a case sometimes, not in the case that you're talking about, but when people use that language of, of, of privilege, they're sort of talking about a sort of a one-on-one competition and it comes down very often again, not in Aboriginal discourse, to the level of the individual. You yeah. have things that I don't and the reason that I don't have these things is that you do. Yeah. And But, you know, you're absolutely also talking about infrastructure, the the, the right to um, communication. Legal rights. Native title is a lesser form of land title than mm. common common law title. Um, you know, in so many areas of, of Aboriginal Australia, they are not afforded the rights that everybody else is. Um they're just not. I mean, in the Northern Territory, legislation was specifically passed to ensure that wasn't the case. They had to exempt the Northern Territory intervention enabling legislation from the Racial Discrimination Act specifically because it was racist. Mm. That's why they suspended the Racial Discrimination Act. So, you know, the reality for Aboriginal people in Australia is they don't enjoy the rights and the privileges that other people um, do. And the discussion, I, I think the discussion around white privilege and the language and the discussion around identity politics is enormously important. And and I, I like uh, watching those discussions and I like having them. I think identity politics is important. I think it's also one of the most abused forms of political debate that there is. Poop, you know, it can go very south very quick, but I still think they're important debates and I think they're well, interesting they're vital, discussions. Especially around racism because yeah. it's such a complex mutant beast the 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 inf- slippery the institutional slippery. racist beast racism changes its shape constantly mm. and that there are scholars activists everyday people trying to examine the origin and the shape of this thing as it exists like absolutely explore that absolutely in your everyday life call out people, absolutely look at different cultural um, uh, artefacts or movies and whatever and say, this is an example of what I deal with every day, all of that discussion and this is what happens legally. You know, mm. all of that discussion is so vital and to say that, I, that, 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 that your identity group, whether it's one that you've self-selected or one that is, you know, being conveniently selected For by you. an oppressor near you, <laughs> yeah. um, is always... Uh, you know, a useful inquiry. Yeah. All I think is that when we talk about privileges, entitlement, welfare and what that now currently means, we are being quite Christian about it. You know, in Matthew, I think it is, um, Jesus says something like the poor will always be with us. Now, this is 
accepted as fact. They say that in US Minister too. It's a line. Yeah. <laughs> it's biblical. It's Christian. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it's sort of accepted as fact that there will always be a poor group of people, poor lambs, you know, as if this was just created by nature. And, it's, it's and, and as though <laughs> so there, will, there will always be powerful people and that our societies are naturally pyramidic. No, it fucking isn't. I mean, you know, the... It's just not like that. It's not necessarily right. like that. That doesn't necessarily have to be where so-called human nature leads us in mass groups um, mm. in in societies. And if you are sort of talking about all of that shit and talking about history as your rationale for the way human history about or human biological history for the way things are in the present, well, you know, I ask you to think then um, about Aboriginal Australians or Aboriginal people rather um uh and it's like well you know like sure it was 230 years ago but the invasion of a country that happened to be mineral rich that brought so many of us lives of enormous privilege privilege if you will <laughs> do you not think then that the question of paying the rent might be something that you wish to consider uh if you're going to use this whole human history thing yeah. Or, or do you think that just taking something from somebody else or some other group is ever justified? I, I don't. I think it's violation. It's a pretty easy concept too and it it's, would be familiar to all Australians. If I just lobbed up on your doorstep, started living in your house and kind of increasingly forced you to one small corner of it and refused to pay you any rent. And You'd ripped all, be, the, all the figs. Yeah, tore it apart. Ripped all the figs your off your tree. You know, <laughs> ate all your food. Like, I, you know, all your vegetables. Yeah. And, and just went, what, what's the problem? I'm civilising you. Uh, and then, I think and you'd then be pretty you, annoyed. And then gave you a piece of paper, you know, allowing you to use the swing set yeah, that was had, originally yours at certain hours of the day, which is, is that a good analogy no, of called, native title? Yeah, well, it is. And then call the coppers in to beat the crap out of you occasionally because you got a bit uppity and... You know, it, it's you know we can't we can't sustain what we've done in this country, and I think we're increased. We were talking about this earlier in the podcast. I think we increasingly know that as a country. I think that we were talking about that late last night at about two o'clock. We were under the fig tree. We were, <laughs> yes, we were. We just can't sustain it, and um, nor should we try. Uh, and and I think people are increasingly realizing that. That's why you've seen this backlash against Sunrise, and it's why there's this growing backlash against. Peter Dutton's decision to, you know, reinstate the White Australia policy with you know, poor South African farmers. Um, I don't think you shouldn't assist uh, anybody uh, who's in need. I think all people in need should be assisted. I just think we've been incredibly choosy about how we do that. Very quickly, because you have been covering this stuff for so long, um, and as a kid, I grew up in Canberra where you lived for a while when you yeah, were yeah, seven the, years in the, Canberra, the, the Love press it. gallery. Mm. Um, I first heard about land rights when I was 15 and things were different back in my day. You know, there was a, there was a, a small group, I guess a much smaller group of people who thought of themselves as progressive and so you found yourself making contact with um, a, a wider range of people, you know. We were all the left mm. and we weren't big and so we were all kind of lumped together. Um as a result, there was a, a group of people in, in Canberra called the Land Rights Mob. Yeah. Um, bloke called Toffee, I remember. And I, as a 16-year-old idiot, had this idea that I wanted some money from the government 
to, I mean, it was completely, you know, fairly Carolyn Chisholm of me, I'm sure, but that I wanted some uh, women from uh, CARMA, the Central Australian um, Aboriginal, Media, Aboriginal Association. Media Association, yeah. to come and have a talk to me and some other ladies. Mm. And this bloke Toffee took me to what was then the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. Yep, in Woden, yeah. And just said, oh, this, you know, chick wants some money. And oh, actually he was much more articulate than that. And, um, you know, I had a discussion with a white bureaucrat. Mm. I didn't end up getting the money, but, I mean, Aboriginal people just used to, oh, in Cary, just used to go into um, Bonner House. Yeah, Bonner House. That's and right. um, named for the first Aboriginal Neville. member of parliament. Yeah. It was from the um, country nationals in Queensland. He was. <laughs> and... Um, and there was a discussion. And then the Department of Aboriginal Affairs closed and then there was ATSIC. ATSIC opened. It's still in Woden but in Lovett Tower, just around the corner. Um, but so the, the powers of ATSIC even have been quite diminished and now what occurs as I understand, and I, I mean I really don't know, I'm sort of talking out my ass here or rather I'm asking yeah. somebody with some expertise a question, um, something I highly recommend to you. What happened that so many Billions of dollars became the use of it became more occluded. I, I think the. I mean, yeah. there's no way that we can say that what the Department of Aboriginal Affairs did was perfect. Oh no! But nor Etsy. I mean, as a youngster, I had this, you know, and it was more than once that I went there. I mean, you could go as a school kid to the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and ask for information, mm. and you know they they give it to you. Yeah. Um, and you know they would they would talk with people, mm. and things some things kind of got done. Yeah. Um. And then with ATSIC, which was, which had less um, power, from what I understand, and more independence from government, things changed again. And and then now they definitely improved under ATSIC. ATSIC oh, they did. Oh, definitely. ATSIC was. ATSIC was much better at service delivery to Aboriginal communities okay. than government has ever been. That's undeniable, as, as countless right. Productivity Commission reports would show. What ATSIC also was, though, was was perceived by John Howard as, you know, uh, separate. They were other. Howard wanted one nation, and, that, and he talked about it quite a lot. Mm. And he believed that a separate department or a separate commission, and ATSIC was a commission, it had the powers of a commission, um, treated Aboriginal people separately and we're all one nation and they should just be lumped in together. They called it main, the mainstreaming agenda. And so that's what Howard did when he eventually uh, could, with the, and it was, it was with the assistance of Labor and actually sparked by Labor, they abolished ATSIC, which was at the time. So ATSIC was good, was it? Um, right. Look, it wasn't without its flaws, yeah. but it was infinitely better at delivery of services to Aboriginal people than what we see today. That's undeniable. Right. Um, but it certainly had its flaws. It was based on a Western... Uh, model and um, it was democratically elected and so Aboriginal people felt like they had more representation but it certainly wasn't without its problems. I mean, Jeff Clark, uh, the head of ATSIC, was twice elected to that role, the second time amid an enormous amount of scrutiny about his past behaviour. Now, you know, um, Aboriginal people, if you think they should be afforded the same rights as everybody else, still have the choice to elect him or not. They did. Um, that's their right. I personally didn't agree with it, but that's not I'm not Aboriginal, so who gives a stuff? Yeah. Um, but 
again, that was a case of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people not being afforded the same rights as everybody else, okay, the so right to elect their own leaders. I, I have hazy, ridiculous memories of the past. I thought that... Um, you know, my memory well, is the a wrong you, one. No, that- it's not. No, look, your memory is entirely accurate um, based on the mainstream coverage of the issue, entirely accurate. I won a Walkley Award for proving otherwise. But ah, that's ironically, what you Walkley for. Yeah, ironically, that's not how the script runs today. Yeah. So, so the media deemed the reporting good enough to win a Walkley but not good enough to stand the test of history and time. Mm. And so the narrative around ATSIC was that yep. it was abolished because it was corrupt. The We won the Walkley because we were leaked cabinet documents which showed the government was, was abolishing ATSIC in large part because ATSIC had launched a high court challenge to a stripping of its powers and ATSIC was likely to win. And if you abolish the litigant, you abolish the court case. Okay, so the true history in, in um, your understanding, which is an expert understanding of a series of policies that have unfolded in yeah. Australia is that the Department of Aboriginal Affairs was a paternalistic organisation. It was, that undeniably. Didn't, that didn't deliver. Mm. That ATSIC was an improvement. An that, improvement. It wasn't far from perfect, a long way from perfect. That the dwindling of ATSIC, and what can ATSIC do now? Well, ATSIC's dead. It's, I mean, it's finished. It, it is dead. It's gone. It's, I, it thought, was I thought you said it was still in a building somewhere. Oh, no, look. No, uh, I, I thought that, that it had completely Wode gone. That was in Love It Tower. Yeah. yeah. No, it's gone. Um, but but there is now, but but the functions of ATSIC and the service delivery was subsumed by FAXIA, the uh, Families mm. um, Indigenous Affairs Community Housing, um, and that was then subsumed by Tony Abbott's move in 2014 or 13. Um, to PMC, so Aboriginal Affairs now is, is is housed within Prime Minister and Cabinet, right? Which is a department that has never been involved in service delivery. So, undeniably, ATSIC was an improvement, but it was all a kind. All of it is a is a facade. The only thing that will work for Aboriginal people is Aboriginal people controlling the decisions that affect their lives and the spending and the policy that affects their lives. That's the only thing that's worked anywhere in the world. Mm. That's that's as I said earlier. That's not an a controversial concept anywhere else in the world. No, and you it see, is only controversial in Australia. And you see uh, people in and around the Black Lives Matter movement, actually, and a lot of Aboriginal communities here too, um, from which I understand Black Lives Matter take instruction. Yeah, um, you know, around um, sort of you know uh, the formation of of uh, local legal systems and and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, so. Uh, you, you know, you see um, places um, in, in the USA where people are actually just forming their own infrastructures yeah. to make up for the fact that there's no government infrastructure at all. People- that's, how the, that's how most Aboriginal organisations alive today were formed. The, the Aboriginal Medical Service, which is now one of the great success stories of Aboriginal Australia, there's over 200 AMSs and they receive probably it's better funding these days, but they receive it without mm. controversy because it's been so effective. But all those AMSs, and, those Aboriginal you know, Medical if, Services... If you want to be like that about it, it's cost-effective as well. It is, but it's community controlled. The Redfern Aboriginal Medical Service, which I worked for for a few years, is still controlled by a elected community board that received no remuneration for their work. That Solly Belair, who passed away last year, mm. was involved with... It's from Mullumbimby, wasn't it? Yeah, he was, Mullumboy. Um, was involved with the AMS, forming it 40 years prior and, and involved with it for 40 years. And it's been an enormously successful Aboriginal organisation, community controlled. Um, to, to the use, ALS, the legal services yeah. are the same. Yeah. I mean, to use a really, um, you know, if you're not an Aboriginal person, you... 
to, to, to use a very kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a crude, it's a very crude analogy. So excuse me. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. You think about in recent years, you know, particularly if you're a mil- of millennial age, how very difficult it is to get, you know, cheap money, a cheap loan from a local, from a bank. Mm. Once upon a time, I mean, you know, like objections to finance notwith- notwithstanding, you would have a local bank manager who would understand the local area who might give you a loan for your business because they had a very intimate understanding of how that could work. Yeah. Um, and now you see sort of more and more centralised, impersonal, algorithmically based control of things like that. You're just not going to get that loan. I mean, I don't think we should live in a world with loans, et cetera, et cetera, but that's the way mm. that we must survive. So, you, you know, th- think about that. When somebody has intimate local knowledge of your area, I mean, you know, talk to any teacher about um, the pros and the cons or mostly the cons of of NAPLAN, you know, so this testing, which was done initially for good reasons, mm. this testing is giving teachers more work, more of a headache. It's devised outside of the everyday experience of teaching, of of learning, of the self-esteem of young people. Look, if you're 40, I don't give, a, you know, like a fl- and, and particularly if you're white middle class, I don't give a fuck about your self-esteem. Go to a shrink. I do. <laughs> I'm, but, I mean, when we're talking about kids, yeah. right, this is when those things are important. This yeah. is a, a foundation. And all of those things that, that happen to kids are so important. And NAPLAN, however well-intended, and um, again, I'm not an expert on it, but I, I mean, I know I've spoken to high yeah. school teachers and, and they're, they're just sort of like overwhelmed by this task, even acknowledging that it was devised for, you know, decent reasons to afford funding where it was yeah, it needed. it was a political decision, I think. So think about examples like that where you get an idea that is imported hypothetically from the finest technocratic minds and then as it plays out in real life, you, you, you've seen it a, a thousand times. You, you maybe have even seen it at work, you know. I mean, my dad was of the generation, he's retired now, where he's always like, my dad's a builder, right? This is like always these bloody Harvard MBAs coming in and telling us how to do our job. Yeah. Or, you know, work safety things being, um, you know, imposed in a workplace where they're entirely inappropriate. They just don't work. It's the same for fucking everybody. It is. It's, it's very much the experience of Aboriginal affairs and there's a really easy and simple way to kind of point out the hypocrisy of it. If you if you, if you, you or I as, as um, East Coast-based journalists go to Alice Springs in the Northern Territory or Darwin and we seek to report, the, the white people there will instantly say to you, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not from here. You're not mm. a local. They use it all the time. Mm. Um those same people, when government bureaucrats from Canberra seek to impose policy on Aboriginal people in their community from on high, they don't make the same argument. Mm. They, they, they abandon that argument entirely and say, oh, yeah, these people don't know what's good for them. Aboriginal people have always known what's good for them. They survived on one of the harshest continents on earth for 60,000 years. Let's they, be they clear about right. this. You're, <laughs> not, you know, you're not sort of imbuing all Aboriginal people with some sort of like extraordinary no, spiritual a, no. power. You just they're not they're saying black fellas. <laughs> pe- people who live they do know what's good for them. Though. A life, yeah. 
They know the, the one the, the thing they know that I don't is how to be Aboriginal and what is good for you when you're Aboriginal. I don't know. I don't know how to be Aboriginal. I'm not Aboriginal. Um, but they know how to care for their communities. They know how to have, they know how to build their economies. They know what their priorities are. Like any group, cultural group of people mm. on Earth, they're just not afforded the right to control that. And we're no closer in Australia, ironically, to that. We're than, further. We're further away. It, it is. It is bizarre as someone who's worked in that area for almost 20 years to see that 20 years down the track, we're not only just having the same debates, but the debates sometimes are even more based. So that sunrise debate the other day doesn't get any more base than that. Yeah. And it's look, it's just peculiar. I mean, people, a lot of people I know, and this is the cause of arguments between me and some former friends, and I'm sure it's you, people want to hold on to this idea that we have a functioning democracy, that the only thing <laughs> yeah. wrong with our Western societies is that we need to be less racist, less sexist and afford everyone equal opportunity. And so this is the sort of the progressive view. And while, of course, it would be completely fucking ideal if you could get your racism and your sexism like surgically extracted, please, within the next five minutes, hmm. that this does not change what actually occurs, and I mean, Chris has just described, you're talking about like sparsely populated um, in, in terms of the intervention um, uh, uh, electorates. And th there's no, there's, there's no like, you know, payback electorally for government for building infrastructure no. in those regions. That's how you lose elections, so, not how you win them. So, <laughs> so stop, yeah, I mean, that's how you lose elections. Oh, look, they're spending all this money on- All the money on the blacks. On, you they're know, out. to, to yeah. uh, em employ Tony Abbott's uh, phrase, people who choose to live a particular lifestyle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, my God. In the Northern Territory, uh, the Northern Territory elections, um, you know, it's a 25-seat parliament, it's a small parliament, and- you know, the population of the Northern Territory is well under half a million. I think it's about 300-odd thousand now. Um, to win office, to win power in the, Nor in the Northern Territory, in, in Darwin, you've got to win the Northern Suburbs, which is predominantly white, um, public servant, middle-class Darwin. Um, you don't win elections uh, in the Northern Territory by saying you will try and alleviate the third world poverty that exists in um, many regions of the Northern Territory. That is precisely how you would lose office. And if you expand outside of the Northern Territory, no no politician in Australian federal history has ever won an election trying to advantage Aboriginal rights. Mm. So that's uh, how you lose elections. If you if you genuinely believe in the idea of democracy and well, it doesn't, it and doesn't work and perfecting <laughs> it. Um, yeah. Or if you want to go with, you know, the the Winston Churchill view is that democracy is a terrible system apart from all of the other ones we've ever tried. Yeah. Just do consider how it works and do consider the foundational assumptions that we're just living in a debate club, everybody is born with exactly the same rights. Um, they're, they're not. I... Because, no, no. because of certain kinds of wealth that I have, cultural wealth in that I'm white, um, uh, social wealth in that I was educated at a really great state school um, and, you know, the, the real um, uh, wealth or wages that I'm able to generate week after week, just not everyone has access to those sorts of things. No. And just just in the terms of like you don't have to be a communist utopian like like me. You just have to ask yourself some difficult questions about what constitutes democracy. And if your answer is 
a good parliament, then you haven't got one one hundredth to the way of understanding what a future participatory, genuinely participatory democracy might be like. People need self-determination in order for self-determination to actually occur, for everybody to be able to live a modern life, clean water, access to food, leisure time, time to reinstate cultural bonds, long hours where you don't feel fucking alienated and in pain. These are rights. They should not be privileges. Yeah. Sorry to go on with that. No, no, no. But if you uh, if you believe you know good parliament is you know the, about good parliament, you obviously haven't been to Canberra. And the the irony of of the Australian standard that we impose on Aboriginal people is we say, well, look at these Aboriginal organisations that have wasted all this money. Largely, that that tale is a myth. Largely, the money that is wasted in, on Aboriginal affairs is largely wasted by bureaucrats. As I said earlier, J- Jenny Macklin spent $150 million on um, Indigenous housing without building a single house. That and had a lot nothing of, to do with Aboriginal of, people. And a lot of this stuff is privatised, right? Like oh, it is so, true. That, that like was all privatised. So many so-called yeah. social services. I mean, the things the in the world- The invention was privatised. I mean, the things in the world that are- the Privatized. I mean, yeah. as I understand it, the, the the World Bank, you know, this organization that is supposed to lift entire nations out of poverty, a lot of the work they do is is you know outsourced to private finance organizations. Uh, the NT intervention was, and it's and this is what has happened after ADSEC is that there is no accountability, and just as our death camps in um, Manus and Nauru are, are used by private enterprise. Um, what happens? There's less accountability. Um, you know, you can say it's kind of like black ops, if it you is. will. In it's the black sides. Um, and it, this is the same thing that occurs. And when I, 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 the welfare of, or just the, 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 the hope, not even for a decent life, but an endurable life of any person has a profit motive attached to it, some shit. Is it's gonna, gonna happen, happen. <laughs> and that's just, and that's not because people are assholes. That's just what happens. And you know, mm. even still believe in capitalism and liberal democracy is the best systems in the world. Even still believe in that, but try to question the idea that private enterprise always does things better. Well, they don't. There are some things that private enterprise absolutely do not do better. They mm. don't build roads more efficiently. Mm. Hey. The cars that they build, they've been pretty good at that. I mean, I'm not, good. I'm not saying, I mean, capitalism has given us so much innovation, but to overlook um, the successful programs of the, the past in terms of what has been provided by the state, there have been times where these things have been and, and, uh, uh, and can be again in the future delivered with expertise and efficiency. Mm. And I'm not recommending that Aboriginal people, again, live under the scrutiny of the state by any means, but it's almost like we've got to get back to the older, harsher reality, which is better than the the current privatised, harsher reality. I I mean, it's just ATSIC was better than private enterprise, is oh, all it's I'm undeniable. fucking saying. The, the hypocrisy is that uh, white people will look at or non-Aboriginal people will look at um, spending in Aboriginal affairs and they'll say, well, Aboriginal organisations wasted all this money. That's largely not true, but but it is true that some Aboriginal organisations have failed and some Aboriginal organisations and governance structures um, have not spent money wisely. That's undeniable. 
But have you been to Parliament lately? Have you seen how, how our government spends our money? I mean, the, the hypocrisy is rank and um, Aboriginal people just need to be given the uh, – we, we need to disengage. They need to disengage and they want to disengage. They just want to be able to run their own affairs like we run our own affairs and that is a fundamental right. Uh, it's it's not it's not a controversial concept that people should be able to self-govern. They do not identify as white Australians or non-Aboriginal Australians, and they're never going to. Let's just say that you also might have the experience of not being able to govern your own life. It's true. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of non-Aboriginal Australians, um, well. Many, many, many non-Aboriginal Australians are stuck in exactly that, and that's a whole other debate. That's about the this, system. This, it is about the system, and fuck the system because the system is fucked. What is the struggle of Aboriginal people? Is the struggle of it's, all people? Yeah, it's the struggle of the working class, the struggle of the middle class, of the one percent. Mm. Just, I want to make a few ludicrous um, conceptual leaps to try and tie up our mutual hangover. Or actually, you don't have one because no, you're, you're a tough, hard man. I'm a hard bastard. Um, I think I'm off the source. Um, <laughs> I'm disappointed that you're in so many ways. Started off um, by talking about the image of uh, Kim Fock, the um, young um, woman, then young girl, whose um, image of her in her devastated nakedness, fleeing from napalm attacks, became very famous in 1972. Um, changed her life changed the Western perception of the war. It was, not so long ago, temporarily banned by reproduction in Facebook who regarded this as an obscenity in the contemporary era for what it showed, which was, in their view, a naked child. The most horrible thing about that photograph, as far as the editors <laughs> of Facebook were concerned, was not an image the nudity. of a war that we must never repeat yet do continually. Um, but it was the the nudity of a little girl, and the um, the woman um, that that little girl became is all for that image hmm. being shown. Today, I notice on Facebook another image has been banned. Facebook has since apologised, and to look at what Facebook does in view of what um, you know, Chris and I have been loosely banging on about, which is. Uh, we've spoken mostly about a, a brief history on the policies enacted on the lives of Aboriginal people. But uh, the other thing that Chris has been talking about is journalism and journalism of sort that he's only able to do at newmatilda.com, that in many cases you're only able to read at that and a, and a, and a selection of other organisations. Follow mm. the work of Amy Maguire at BuzzSuite's feed, look at Indigenous X, look at what else, Chris? What would you recommend that, that people read if they want a true account and a real account and a useful account? Um, the Guardian's Paul Daly is very good on Aboriginal affairs. Indigenous X is an exceptionally good um, source of information on Aboriginal affairs. Uh, anything Amy writes, anything Celeste Little writes. Um, NITV is actually. I've never met Celeste. Bit of a fan. She's yeah. I'm a fan of Celeste as well. I I think Celeste is one of the great Aboriginal writers of this country. There's, she's getting really funny too. Have you noticed? Yeah, she's yeah. She's quite, she's a bit of a character. She's just she's a brilliant brilliant thinker and a brilliant writer. So is Amy. 
Um, but there's many Aboriginal writers now coming through who are, are okay. Doing so there's some. Work. If I ever get around to doing show notes, I will include those links. Um, but probably not because I'm a disaster. <laughs> I just so we're talking about journalism. Who owns truth and who owns the the big depictions we see of whatever the problem is? It's Facebook. In many cases, Facebook owns the truth. This is I'll where tell you what it is. this is where most millennials now get their news, and I'm, that's fine. I mean, social media. From what I understand, you know, millennials and so-called Generation Z, because no one's thought of a better name yet. Yeah, been unoriginal. Uh, in in the West, are acquiring their information from Facebook, which they understand not as Facebook. It's it's a medium. Yeah, but it's a news agent. Facebook is is more than a, a medium. Facebook is a thing that is controlled sometimes algorithmically. Yeah. So sometimes, just as in the case of what we're talking about with Australian history and the way it continues to um, crush, diminish, demonise Aboriginal lives. Again, not to be all pity pity here, because survival is a joyous thing. The mm. fact that Aboriginal culture still meaningfully exists and still informs, even if white Australia doesn't admit it, but still informs what it may, what it means to be Australian. Mm. I mean, so much of what we are comes from Aboriginal culture. Mm. Do, do you agree? Oh, look, uh, it's all over the country. It's just people choose, even, they call it something else or they don't identify it or they don't understand it. It's, I mean, our accents, some of our words are, yeah, anyway, on and on and on. I was going to say, all Facebook is, is a modern news agent, but when you go into that news agent, there are, the news agents decides, says some things you shouldn't read. Oh, yeah, I mean. It's a news agent without any, with no laws applicable to it, whose entire motive is profit. Um, they uh, don't have any social responsibility, Facebook. Of course They'll they don't. They'll pretend they do, but uh, they don't. And it's, you know, the the everyday understanding perhaps of you and why shouldn't it be that this is the place that you keep up to date with news. And yeah. to use the old news agent analogy, if you've ever been into one, you may not have. Yeah. Um, is there's not even sealed sections anymore. There's just entire boxes of publication that are not available for view. Yeah. And it's just interesting to think about the things that sometimes they they ban, sometimes um, intentionally and sometimes just because it's flagged mathematically, which is a yeah. really interesting way to think about history sometimes. It's a bunch of shit that happens. It's not because necessarily some such and such a person is a fuckwit, of course. It's not always a conspiracy. Um, and so I see today... Um, Facebook has um, censored, or did for a while, um, a, a picture by the 19th century French romantic artist Delacroix. Um, it's a painting. I don't know shit about visual art. I really don't. <laughs> but it's called Liberty Leading the People, and it's a depiction of the French Revolution, a symbolic uh, romantic depiction mm. of the French Revolution. Liberty is understood as a woman and see, titty pick, she's got oh, them out. Topless, I'm offended. Um, and this, so Facebook has apologised today for banning this masterpiece. I read a little bit just before we were having a chat about this masterpiece. Now, it instantly made Delacroix famous and yep. also quite well to do because this understanding of the bourgeois French Revolution, 
Mm. the thing that so disappointed Marx, um, was highly regarded at the time and it was thought of, you know, as a really respectable depiction of what the new capitalist liberty, um, you know, the, the absolute change from feudalism meant, meant to France. And so after this, Delacroix received many commissions from the French state and mm. became a famous and respectable artist. So this image is one of Shocking. like total respectability. I mean, I don't even think you can see the nips. Can you got better eyesight than me? Can you see her nips? Oh, I can see a hint of a shadow of a nip. Just, just, a, tu- <laughs> just a touch of like um, Elaine Bennis style on the Christmas card. Yeah, that's card. Right, on the Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Facebook mistakenly banned this. Now, I guess if there hadn't been some, you know, storied um, visual art historian who had seen this act of inadvertent censorship, it might still be down. Now, personally, um, I don't learn a lot from looking at this other than the French were and remain very proud of what they believe to be democracy, that wonderful democracy where they've banned certain women from wearing certain things. Um. So yeah, it's just maybe it's, just it's an interesting. Want to leave you with that? It's thought. interesting, interesting because we got banned from Facebook last year and the year before for an image uh, of a, of two topless Aboriginal women who were performing ceremony in Central Australia. And oh, in fact, the obscenity! Yeah, and and they were paint their their breasts were covered in ceremonial paint. They were women in their seventies and eighties. Um, it wasn't a sexualized image in any way, shape, or form, and it was attached to a story. Uh, that Celeste Little, ironically, wrote, um, which made the point that Aboriginal, uh, the fetishisation of Aboriginal women and the uh, sexualisation of Aboriginal women by media was appalling. Um, we attached that image to the story because it suited the story. Facebook um, banned New Matilda. It, it gave Celeste a 30-day ban. It banned numerous readers um, from, from uh, New Matilda readers who shared the story. Um, they didn't apologise for it, uh, and it remains to this day an image that can't be shared on Facebook. Uh, at the same time, a, a very sexualised image of Kim Kardashian um, was doing the rounds on Facebook. Oh, yes, uh, the bottom one. Yeah. Look, yes, I got banned Well, from... she had one with her nipples covered with paint. I, so. I got I, – there was the one of her, her bottom as well, yeah. the break the internet one. Yeah, break the internet. Um, and um, I put a shirt on her like a, and I was banned perversely just in my personal account for Facebook from 30 days for – <laughs> for putting an, a, a nice outfit on Kim, yeah, um, which was peculiar when this the image of her completely naked was one of utter acceptability. Obscenity, so, yeah. I mean, mm. there's just you know, there's not always a great deal of thought that goes no, into not. this algorithmic banning, um, and you know, many times for, for 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 truly serious hideousness, there's a, a group of people that I believe, uh, and this is um, you know, some reporting from the magazine Wired that found that the people who were deciding what the truly horrendous things that people in the West shouldn't Mm. see or that people who are lucky enough to be able to spend some leisure time on on Facebook, um, this is a a group of workers in the global south who are paid virtually nothing, who have 
this is according to Wired, no employee Facebook entitlements and they watch these horrendous things every day. So, like, there's no AI to do that yet. Um, But, I mean, a lot of the reason that people get banned is because of these uh, or images get banned or stories get banned um, are because of these arbitrary images. Now it looks like Facebook is taking a more editorial approach and people like me who may write around the Mueller thing um, and the American view that, um, or the liberal American view rather, that the, the Russians tampered with the US election, um, those sorts of stories are now being, you know, people are being actively dissuaded from from seeing them. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm just saying when we have a place that is tightly controlled by a few, well, old fuckers like us get on the source and yeah. we start to do podcasts in a ridiculous it's the only way to respond. Unsteady attempt to try and not tell you what's what, but to help you navigate all of the bullshit information. If you think that you can read mainstream press and read opposing accounts and then somewhere in the middle will be the truth, I'm afraid you're fucking wrong. <laughs> uh, You've got to work out for yourself a view of reality, of democracy, of basic human survival. Decide what your special interest is. Read it. If you're fucking mad enough, become a journalist and start to write about it like my mate Chris Oh, just abide with me and the soft, adorable bear called Knackers and his godfather, who is Chris Graham, <laughs> newmatilda.com. Did we do better this time? We did. I think this was – it was certainly more cogent and I don't think we've offended as many people potentially. That, that's probably not as good. But, yeah. I'll see you later. If you want to email me, Helen at badhostess.com, don't try to hit me up, as the kids probably don't say anymore and haven't for many years. On social media, I just post shit and I don't look at what you say. It's a fucking headache. I have to talk to my psychologist about it. It's all too much. But I'm very, very happy to talk to you by email. Very happy to uh, speak with you. It was depressing. You retained focus. You're welcome. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure as always. You've been listening to Knackers and the Vag with Chris Graham from New Matilda. <laughs>